Welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we have two special guests. So this is our first time welcoming two guests to the podcast. Uh, we have Julio Concho and Juan Carlos Herrero, or Herrera. Um, they are, they both, or they work at uh, Inscription Capital, and I'm going to let them get into that, exactly what that is a little bit more. Um, they've got background working with hedge funds, and they've got some really interesting projects coming out. So without further ado, Juan, Julio, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, we want to start things off. Uh, I've been told Julio is the brains of the operation here. Julio, can you give us a little bit of background? Can you tell us your first interaction with the markets? What brought you to to the markets to begin with? Um, so I think it brought me to the markets, um, mainly my studies. Uh, so uh, as an undergrad, I, I think I was ex exposed to financial theories. Uh, so that was mainly the first time I, I, I interacted with uh, with anything that has to do with, um, with the markets. Uh, in practice, the first time I interacted uh, was when I used to work in New York for Ziv Brothers Investments. That was the first time I was hands-on in, 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 uh, with something related to, to the markets. So Ziff Brothers, can you, give an can you tell us what Ziff Brothers Investments is for people not familiar with the firm? Yes, it's a private investment uh, company uh, that manages the money of uh, one of the wealthiest families in the, in the US. Um, so uh, we used to invest in many different asset classes um, and basically managing the wealth of, of, of this family. Can you give me an idea of how much money you guys were managing? Uh, I will say that it was a multi-billion Multi-dollar portfolio, yes. Okay. So what was your role there? So you guys are managing billions of dollars, trying to make these people more money or at least not lose their money. Uh, what, what was your role? Uh, so I started as an associate uh, in the risk and performance department. And then I was uh, uh, promoted eventually to become the direct, a director of the risk and performance department. So I was a quantitative researcher um, so I was in, in charge of monitoring the portfolios across all the asset classes, um, trying to understand the performance uh, of, of the portfolio and um, making suggestions about ways to improve our uh, investment philosophies, uh, but also to keep an eye on the risks that we were taking. So can you give us an example of something where you were balancing, trying to grow, but also balancing the risk? Is there an example you can give us of what something you did at, at, uh, at Ziff Brothers? Uh, yeah, an, an example could be, um, uh, for example, what if we want to have higher expected returns, uh, but at the same time, not wiping out the portfolio. So uh, in that case, uh, what you need to do is to use leverage. Uh, and uh, every time you use leverage, you have to be very careful with potential wipeouts. So therefore you need to have hedges uh, in case that the portfolio experiences uh, extreme, um, I would say uh, returns, right? Negative returns. So it was 
a way of how you take more risk, more, more leverage, but at the same time, you manage your downside risk, which is by hedging, in other words. Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. And how did you, for a lot of people who are new to the markets or might be just getting their first introduction, how did you end up uh, getting the uh, in the door at a place like Ziff Brothers? Uh, it was pure luck. Uh, I mean, really. Um, uh, when I was finishing my, uh, uh, my PhD, I went on the market and uh, I, I received an invitation to interview with, with them. Actually, I didn't know who they were because they are uh, very confidential about uh, their information. So I Googled it. Uh, I didn't find anything, uh, really, uh, only that they used to be the owners of Ziv Davis in, uh, Publishers. Uh, but that's it. But then I say, okay, I mean, I don't, I, I don't really lose anything interviewing and, and, and knowing more about them. I mean, I, I always enjoy to, to I always enjoy learning about uh, more people and the things they do, especially because my dissertation was in optimal asset allocation. So I really wanted try, like to exchange ideas with at least with them. Right? So, uh, so then uh, they interview me and um, we like each other. And then we started talking more and more until they gave me a, an offer. So really that, that was the way uh, this happened. So they contacted, contacted me uh, through the website in, uh, at Princeton University, and then I follow up. Wow, that's really interesting. And I agree with you. I'm, I've always had the same mindset. Anytime somebody contacts you, I always wanted to say, you know what, you take the interview, worst case, you waste an hour of your life, right? Exactly, exactly. Julio, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, Princeton's like, you know, one of the best universities in the, in the country, you know, has this amazing reputation and, you know, getting a, you know, a PhD, you know, from that institution, I mean, that must've been some meeting some imp- incredible people and, you know, the experience. I mean, I would assume that, you know, with that on your resume, you probably could have gotten a job anywhere you wanted. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure about that, but I think, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I can get a job anywhere, but uh, definitely helped me to to get some good interviews and 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 to have a, a I would say a professional career. Definitely, yes, it helped me too. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciate you going into your background a little bit, Juan. I'd love to jump over to you here and just get a little bit about your background. How did you get started in the markets? What was your first interaction? Um, so I, you know, I started in two thousand and six working uh, two, about a year and a half after graduating college, um, working at Citigroup. After about a year and a half working for a boutique consulting firm in Madrid, Spain, right after college, I, I came back to the States and um, my former boss in Madrid knew my new boss that, that uh, I got hired by in, uh, at Citigroup. So I was at Citigroup for about three years, um, mainly in wealth management. And after three years, a client of mine started a hedge fund and he was talking to me about, you know, the, the, the algorithms that he was designing and whatnot. And he needed someone to come in and help them help him with sales. And so one thing led to another. I left Citigroup and right as the financial crisis started in 2008. Um, it was actually perfect timing because the financial crisis happened in 08, but the hedge fund actually made a lot of money in 08. Um, uh, later on, I kind of realized it was probably also because of luck, <laughs> but, but, um, but we ran that hedge fund for about seven years, sold it in 2015. And in 2015, um, 
Julio basically came down to live in Houston. Um, I had met Julio previously during my hedge fund days, trying to get the Ziff brothers to invest in the hedge fund. And Julio was one of their, one of their gatekeepers in a way. And so uh, I ended up uh, becoming really good friends with him. And, uh, you know, one day he calls me up and says, Hey, I'm, I'm here in Houston. I, 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 I resigned from, from Ziff and I'm just kind of looking for the next chapter of my career. And I said, Hey, let's go have coffee. And at that moment in time, I had sold my hedge fund and we were, I was in the middle of actually creating this, uh, this plan, this business plan to create a family office for, for some families here in Houston that sold their business and wanting to, wanted to really figure out what was the best way to manage their money and started really picking Julio's brain as to, hey, how would you do it? What did you do at Ziff? And how would we create this? And, and that led to what today is um, Inscription Capital, which now is one of the um, fastest growing in, independent advisors in, in, in Texas. Uh, we manage a little bit over $1.2 billion. Um, we also are the founding partners of an asset manager called Quantor Capital. Um, and I can get into what that does in a bit. Is that, that just is two funds that we manage uh, specifically for the, this investment philosophy that, that, that we- uh, so Let me back up just a minute though. Did you manage to get uh, Julio at, to invest in the hedge fund when he was at, at Ziff Brothers? No, he did not. He did not. And he's probably not, but now that I've had, you know, Julio as a mentor for many years, um, I don't blame him <laughs> at all. <laughs> not to say my hedge funds returns were bad. They were, they were pretty good returns. It, it was really, um, you know, I always say you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so it took me a while to figure out from kind of being under Julio's guidance, learning a lot of things I never knew. And so now looking back at it, I, I don't blame him for not investing. So Julio, can you speak to that at all? Was there something that scared you about them or was it just not quite the right fit? Uh, I think it was not the right fit. That was the main, uh, yeah, the, the main reason why. It, there was not a, a good fit uh, uh, with, um, uh, with our investment philosophy at CIF. So that's why uh, we decided not to, not to continue, right? Looking at, at this hedge fund. Certainly. And I think it still speaks volume that you, you two ended up being friends out of it. You know, even if the, even if the companies weren't necessarily a good fit, you guys still got, uh, well, managed to I always them. say, I always say you always want to, you, you don't ever want to make enemies of people that you can always, you know, down the road, maybe uh, become friends with. So <laughs> I hundred percent agree. So, so Juan, out of curiosity, I was, I was reading a little bit of your bio about that, um, hedge fund and it seemed like, uh, you know, it said it did, uh, you know, quantitative, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it was a quantitative hedge fund. So can we talk about what a quantitative hedge fund is, does? Because I, you know, we hear these words like quantitative and that's kind of a, maybe yeah. a buzzword that's around, but like, what it does is. that day-to-day -day look like, you know, and what kind of clients are you going after? And, you know, I just imagine a bunch of computers trading, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, so by quantitative, we, um, we, more specifically to that hedge fund that we ran was a rules-based, algorithmic, um, we only traded futures contracts, um, mainly trend following what, uh, uh, strategy that worked well, still probably may work well, um, but the opportunity cost probably of investing say in an S&P 500 index fund is, is probably better than investing in this type of strategy. Um, you know, we, we were very lucky and fortunate that our first year in 2008, that was the first year the fund really was, was up and running. It killed it, it crushed it. But because the stars aligned for the environment to really be favorable to a strategy like that. So it wasn't necessarily that my strategy with the specific algorithms and, and signals did well in 2008. 
pretty much anyone that had similar strategies did very well in 2008 based off of this philosophy, right? So the market environment actually provided a good environment for us in 2008. So we got very cocky actually after 2008 and said, oh, we're the best. We look, we made a lot of money. Everyone else lost a lot of money. And then four or five years later, we realized, oh, this is tough. Like this is tough. You know, you know, the consistencies of outperforming the markets is, 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 is very hard. So apparently, so you guys had very different backgrounds coming into this and then you guys combined and made Inscription Capital. Can you tell us a little bit about what Inscription Capital does? And yeah, just give us the background there. So yeah, so we originally made Quantor Capital. Uh, that was okay. the first company that we founded. And then- oh, If you want to speak to that first, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. And so that was the family office that we first created. And then Inscription Capital, we actually joined, we spun off our, our, our advisory practice because Quantor Capital was an investment advisor and an asset manager because we did everything for these families. So we set up this family office under Quantra Capital and then began to open it up and we registered as registered investment advisors. We were also an asset management company. Um, a very good friend of mine that uh, worked at UBS by the name of Brian Bova left UBS and with his team. And when they left, we were talking with saying, hey, you know, it makes sense for us to merge because they really liked our investment philosophy. At the end of the day, joining the groups under our investment philosophy made all the sense in the world. So we did that uh, early last year and formed Inscription Capital with, you know, uh, with this investment philosophy at its heart. Um, so Julio now with Brian are the co-CIOs um, of, in, of Inscription and, uh, and Julio and myself still have uh, ownership of, of Quantro Capital. Um, the relationship between the two firms is Inscription Capital's investment philosophy, which I can, if you want me to, you want me to get into that now? Um, yeah, by all means. So basically it's very simple, right? We, 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 we have a very scientific way of investing, which is what does the evidence show? Um, what, are, what are all the statistics and the evidence pointing to as far as recommending uh, people what is going to give them the highest probability of achieving a positive expected return in the future. And the evidence states very clearly that number one, it's very difficult to outperform the markets in the long run. Okay. And this is pretty much kind of like global warming, right? It's like science has been settled here. It's been going, it's been, it's been, you know, studied for 50 years now. Right. And lots and lots of evidence uh, shows this in, in, in peer reviewed academic journals and in practice and theory. Um, so Based off of this, the next question then we ask ourselves was, okay, well, if that's the case, um, what should investors do then, right? And the answer is investors should try to replicate the markets as cost-effective as possible and diversify as much as possible. However, the problem with diversification, right, is that it, it decreases your returns, but it also decreases your risk, right? So, People then kind of question this because they say, well, if I diversify, you know, that's well, that's good and all, but, you know, I want to make a lot of money. How do I make a lot of money if I'm going to diversify and I'm only going to be making three or 4% returns? Um, well, that's where, you know, I think the, the next step that we try to educate our clients on is, well, then you can take leverage. That's another way of increasing your risk. So if you start off from a very diversified portfolio, we call it a global market portfolio, a portfolio that actually invests in every single asset class in the world. So let's assume that you created a portfolio that invests in all the stocks in the world, all the bonds in the world, all the natural resources in the world, all the real estate in the world. Okay. You essentially have replicated all of the assets. So you have to think about it this way. Um, 
capital flows from one asset to another based off of market expectations. So if the market believes that there's going to be a recession, people will sell their risky assets, they'll sell their stocks, they'll sell their you know, real estate maybe, and they'll put their money into safe assets, maybe gold, maybe short-term treasury bonds, right? And those will get a bid, right? Um, or if they believe inflation is going to come, then you know, uh, gold and commodities will get a bid. Um, so again, it's like money's in this one big balloon. And if you invest in all of it, you're capturing those flows, right? Because at the end, it's kind of like, you know, if you invested in just the S&P 500, and let's say for a second that you invested in all the retail brick and mortar companies that you also invested in Amazon, right? Uh, you would have lost all your money in brick and mortar re uh, uh, retail, but Amazon absorbed it all. So again, unless the you money- GameStop equities, I'm sorry? I said, unless you had GameStop in that mix. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So essentially that's the, the premise is, is, Diversify as much as possible. Own all of the global assets that you can in, in a passive way, okay? And, and then if you require that you are more tolerant of risk, you can always then lever that portfolio up to match your risk tolerance. So, so I'm curious, Juan Carlos, just who are your clients that are, are, are going to inscription? Is this like everyday folks? Are these high net worth individuals? What are the, what are the types of folks that come and, and can reach out so to So we started off with just high net worth individuals and um, have now begun to do the same philosophy for, um, for other investors as well. Investors, you know, that, that have maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars as well. Um, and the access to leverage and the access to increasing your risk tolerance through leverage unfortunately isn't yet open to everybody because of more, mainly because of regulations, right? And we have, what we did was we actually created a fund through Quantro Capital that provides a vehicle for leveraging the global market portfolio. But in order to invest in this fund, you have to be a qualified investor or accredited investor. Okay. So the next best option that if you can't find someone that can, you know, handle and knows what they're doing with leveraging a global market portfolio, right? We use futures contracts actually to, to do the, to apply the leverage. We can get into that if y'all want, but just in, from the hundred, hundred, hundred foot view of things. Um, it, it, the other option is to move your asset allocation then to an asset class that has more risk. So that's, that's why you see in these models that usually banks and wealth management firms create that, you know, if you want higher returns, if you're younger, they're going to say own more equities, right? They, they're saying that because that's in theory, correct, right? It's like, it's, it's what's going to give you a higher expected return, but it's also going to increase your risk, right? What's not optimal about that is that now you're betting that one asset class, let's call it the S&P 500 will outperform everything else, right? Which could happen maybe, right? But it's not a guarantee that that'll happen. So a more optimal way of doing it is actually to not break up this asset allocation that's optimal that invests in all the assets, right? And then you can just lever that up to a risk tolerance that you want. Um, so, um, so, so right, yeah. In I mean, terms of leveraging things up, obviously that costs money too. So how does all that start to balance out? Is there like, you mentioned that a lot of high net worth people come into this. Is it, do you have to have a certain amount of cash to come in and be able to leverage it up to be able to get your risk up? Do you understand my? I guess is the strategy work better at scale. Like if you, have, I guess, is that the the question? No, no. Like, I'll, look, I'll, I use an example. Let's take real estate and let's take a uh, S and P five hundred index fund, and let's just use those two as an example. Okay, most people are used to leveraging real estate, a mortgage in your house, right? You're most people that's leverage, right? You put a down payment in your house, you borrowed money from the bank. OK, 
Okay. And now let's say your house is worth a hundred dollars. Okay. You put a 20% down payment. Um, let's just call it a 50% down payment, right? Just to make the numbers look easy. Okay. You, let's say the house is worth a hundred dollars. You put $50 down and the bank lends you $50. Let's assume the interest rate zero just for making simplicity, right? Um, if the real estate asset now, the actual house goes from the price of $100 up to say $150, okay? What just happened is you just made a 100% return because you just put $50 in. You borrowed the other 50, right? And then someone else can't, you know, someone offered you $150, you sold the house for $150 and you made a 100% return because of the leverage, right? So okay. that, that concept now can be applied to the S&P 500, same thing. So in the futures markets, you can actually use futures to, le to they're inherently levered, right? So one S&P 500 futures contract has a notional value of around $100,000, Julio, thereabouts, and the E-mini. So that's one contract that costs $100,000 that the exchange is going to say, hey, you only need to put 10% down payment. So I only need to put up $10,000 to control something that's worth $100,000, right? Like that house analogy. But now if it goes down 10%, right? Now I've lost my $10,000 and I get margin called, right? But the amount of leverage that futures contract is giving me is probably a lot more than I need. So the minimum down payment is $10,000, again, to control a $100,000 contract of the S&P. But I can always put 40,000 or 50,000 or 60,000 down payment, right? And have less leverage. So now I get to have like this dial that can dictate how much risk I'm willing to take. Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I think you've answered my question. I was more looking at, cause my first thought is I know if I go, you know, if I'm holding uh leverage positions, which is a margin position, you know, overnight, you know, each trader, whoever is going to charge me, you know, interest. And so I think but the futures contract, I think is, I guess was the, which by the way has its cost. So I don't know if who, who do you want to explain a little bit the cost of futures? Yeah. I mean, it, it I mean, it's, the main cost is that futures are, are identical to borrowing money. I mean, it's really the same. It has to be equivalent by no arbitrage. Um, so, um, of course, you will have to pay the, uh, at least the risk-free rate if you are using futures. So, so you're right, uh, Michael. So you will have to use, you have to pay this, um, this embedded cost, but it's exactly the same as if you borrow money to invest. That's the idea, right? I mean, because at the end, uh, really what, what we are trying to do here is, is the following. We are telling people, try to replicate the markets as much as possible. If you do that, then uh, because you are diversifying so much, you are reducing your expected return, but also you are reducing your risk. Now, by doing diversification, you are kind of getting the only potential free launch that we, that we have, which is you are lowering more your risk than your expected return. That's kind of what is happening with, with, with diversification. Now, some people will say, okay, this risk is too low for me. Uh, and also the expected return. How can I get a higher expected return? So the way that you could do this is by borrowing money and investing in a diversified portfolio. So that's the way to do it. That's one way to do it, which is kind of equivalent as using futures contracts. That's okay. the idea. That makes sense, Brian. Oh, no, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting philosophy. I, I think, you know, 
I mean, and I guess there's a lot of different investment philosophies. I mean, I guess when, but you, I guess you were saying you didn't favor weighting a portion of the portfolio. Again, you were saying, you know, you could go more equities and, you know, less real estate, or you could go, you know, you know, cash versus bonds and, you know, make this portfolio. So I guess, I guess, I, do you have an opposition to weighting or you just, pref- I guess, do you prefer the, this strategy because it, it gets you a higher return with less risk? I guess, I'm just curious, what's the, what's the trade-off there, but why, why not just weight your portfolio into a, a riskier category with a higher expected return? That's a that's always an option, right? I, I prefer invest. Um, the problem with leverage is a lot of people don't know how to do the leverage, right? The actual implementation of the leverage is is not straightforward. In in this case, it's not like a mortgage, and you, it's not really available like a mortgage is in your house, right? The concept's the same. Um, so we do realize that you know people are going to be limited to getting access or knowing how to implement leverage through futures contracts and how to actually do this in a way where they're not going to you know blow up their account. If you don't know what you're doing, please do not do this, <laughs> right? Um, so um, for those who can't access that or or have access to maybe consultants like us to help them do this, right? The next best option is to just tilt your portfolio like you said, into a uh, riskier asset class. So if you want higher returns, think of it this way, right? If you're someone who's very risk tolerant and you cannot access leverage or, or, or just don't know how to do that to you know, lever up a diversified portfolio, then yes, your next best option would be to invest, say, in a global index fund, right? What we say we prefer a global index fund that is truly market cap weighted throughout the whole world because- you know, a lot of times we have this thing, this, this home bias, right? Where people want to invest only in U.S. stocks for some reason, right? So that's that great. And it's, everybody and it's, has that around the world, even that even in markets that do awful historically, which at least the U.S. historically you, does yeah, well. Correct. And you find this in every country, right? People in, you know, people in Mexico will only usually mainly invest in Mexican stock market, right? Even though Google has a higher market capitalization than the entire Mexican stock market. So technically it's less risky to invest in Google than all of the stocks in Mexico. So, but this home bias is true for US investors too, right? So we always try to say, number one, do not pay attention to past performance. That's hard to do because people will look at the U.S. right now and say, oh, it's outperformed everywhere else. Therefore, I should put only U.S. stocks. You don't know what's going to happen the next 10 years, right? Or the next 20 years. So if for say China or India or someone else knocks the U.S. off of its throne and some other companies start doing well, if you own a global index, that you won't have to do anything and that'll be reflected in the price in the long run, right? So I'm curious. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, funds or, you know, places, I think they pride themselves on trying to, I don't know, say predict the future, but they pride themselves on trying to make those stock picks. Like they're trying to find the next Amazon. They're trying to use, you know, like you said, you made your global warming analogy, like, you know, there's, there's some evidence this is going to happen. You know, okay. I think there's evidence that we're going to head, you know, go to an electric vehicle economy, you know, or I think that, you know, CRISPR gene editing is going to be in the future. So, you know, I think, and I think brick and mortar is going to be going by the wayside. So I think, you know, I don't know, maybe <laughs> it, this seems like maybe a less fun thing to do, just invest in everything where, you know, a lot of people spend their time and effort really trying to pick those winners and losers and, you know, trying to, you know, have fun saying, you know, I got the next, you know, you know, Google, I got the next Amazon. This is, this is 100% not sexy, right? This is not like the fun investment, but it is the investment that most people, in my opinion, should have as their core right? This would be the centerpiece of your investment portfolio. If you're someone who likes to take a lot of risk and, and do trading and do something on that on the, around the edges of this, great, right? This is where you can get into technical analysis or value uh, analysis and valuating a stock or trying to find the next trend or, me- or next global trend. There's nothing wrong with that, right? I think that's great. 
The evidence though shows that your probabilities, if you go that route of trying to outperform the market is very, very low. Think of it in a very simple way. The market is, is a zero sum game, meaning for every person that outperforms the market, there has to be someone that underperforms the market. So the, all three can go up in price, right? Let's say the market goes up 10% one year. You could have someone that made 15% one year and that another person made 5%. Everyone made money, right? But the person who made 5% could have just invested in the market and made a much better return, right? So for every person that underperforms, every, someone has to outperform. So it's, so it's this competitive game, right? And what, ends up, what we end up seeing in the evidence is that pretty much every year, give, it, give or take, when you, now you factor in costs into that equation, right? Once you, once you factor in costs, this line that's in the middle, that's like 50-50 shifts. So all of a sudden now you've got like 30 or 40% only of the people that outperform in any so, given year. It's so like I lay devil's advocate here. So, you know, I, I watched Jim Cravers. So he's a guy, you know, and I, you yeah. may be familiar with him on CNBC, you know, he's like, you know, there, you can do the, a lot of these passive index funds, but those just include bad companies too. Like these are obviously bad companies that are part of it. And if everyone just throws their money at index funds, you're not going to be able to weed away the winners and the losers because the good firms won't succeed and the bad firms won't, you know, fail off by the wayside. If we're all just throwing money evenly at a bunch of companies, you know, everything. So there is some price to- Hold on, hold on, hold on. You just said something there. It's not right. It's, you, you're not throwing the money evenly. Okay, this is a very, a, very, a very important concept to know is that a, a market, a true market cap index fund is market cap weighted. And that's, I think, a very important concept for people to know why it's market cap, cap weighted. Okay, so okay. Meaning, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You, yeah, go ahead on that point. Yeah, please elaborate then. No, no, no. But so like on the Jim Cramer's side, right? Like um, there are going to be bad companies in an index for sure, right? That people believe are bad. Um, but then we have to define bad. What does bad mean? Does bad mean because you don't like it? Well, there's a lot of other people that do like it because obviously the price is where it is, where it's in the top or it's getting enough weight for it to be relevant in the index, right? So it's all kind of relative. At the end of the day, what you're doing with buying the index is you're not playing this zero-sum game. You're just saying, look, I'm just going to invest in the market. And people have a hard time with that sometimes because they see that as average. But when you look at this scenario that I was going to play out with a zero-sum game, for any given year, let's say 30 or 40% of the people beat the market, right? Active traders beat it, right? So they're going to be saying, great. The next year, another 30 or 40% beat it. But what's, what the evidence shows is that when you stretch this out over 10, 20 years, those 30 or 40% of the people that every year are beating it are not the same people. So then you get out to 10, 15, 20 years, and it's down to like 20% that beat it and down to like 10% that beat it. And so what's happening though, is that people are not actually outperforming the market in the very long run. And there's a very famous study done by Eugene Fama who won the Nobel prize that basically he came to the conclusion and saw and stated said that look over the, a long enough time, 97% of active managers fail to, under, to uh, outperform their benchmarks. Um, and so, yeah, that's, the, that's, that's what the evidence says. The problem is, is that we love stories as human beings, right? And so the stories are always going to get the best of us. And so that we're just going to, we're just trying to show what the evidence says. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, you may have some investors in the future saying, Hey, you know, maybe I have an ethical dilemma investing in certain companies. You know, I don't like polluters. I don't like gambling, you know, I mean, I guess I'm assuming that you're, you could, you know, make a portfolio or, or make it in a certain way that I, you know, if I don't want to support a certain asset class, then I can like, you know, tailor. I, don't, I, don't, I guess I've, I've never worked with a hedge fund or had other people managing my money. So I, I don't, I don't know what like level of, I guess, decision-making is evolved when people are coming to you. Are they just kind of giving you their money and you just run with it? Or are they telling you, Hey, there's some, some restrictions, you know, I have on, you know, what I want you to do. I'm, I'm kind of just curious what happens behind the scenes. 
So in a very, we try to, we really try to simplify everything, right? So we come in and we say, okay, guys, let's say that you're clients of ours and you come in and you say, you've got a million bucks and you want to figure out what to do. So I'll say, number one, let's figure out how much money do you need in say an emergency pile stashed away for a 12 month period. And every 12 months, we're going to come back and try to figure out depending on how your life changes, whether that's enough. So we go up or down. So let's just say that you need $100,000 in your bank account, just in case you lose your job or something, right? That you don't have to go sell any investments. You don't have to liquidate anything. It's just there sitting for you in case another COVID hits or disaster hits that you're there, you're covered at six to 12 months to go get another job or get another income stream, right? Now you're left with $900,000. And now our job is really to figure out how much risk can you actually tolerate? Right. So we're going to go, we're going to paint you a picture and say, look, we're going to create this very safe and diversified portfolio that invests in everything. Right. That might probably have a volatility of call it four to 5%, very safe, very low volatility. Right. Um, and probably expect to have returns anywhere in the range of say three to 5% average over say 15, 20 years. And then you'll tell me, Hey, was that, is that, does that, does that meet your goals? And you might say, no, I, I need a little bit higher returns. So then what we try to make people see is, okay, well, try bucketing your money out instead of looking at, as, instead, of looking this, uh, 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 instead of looking at this $900,000 that's left as one big pile of cash, tranche that out into two. One is going to be your sleep well at night portfolio that you're not going to have to worry about because it's going to be in this very low volatility, passively invested, low cost index of the world, Okay that during March of last year, during coronavirus was down about 9%. Yeah. Okay. It's a gun punch, but you can live with 9% being down whenever the whole world was on fire. Right. So this is the one portfolio where you set it, you forget it. You know what you're going to get with that long-term you're going to always keep up with inflation. So that's not going to ever be a concern because you're invested in everything. So if interest rates and inflation go up to say 7%, this portfolio should move accordingly. Right. And have a spread on that. The reason we're saying that expect returns around 3% right now is because inflation zero, right? Inflation's, there is no inflation right now. And so the, 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 the expected returns of that are also probably so can, very Can I just low. interrupt with just a quick question? So how sure. do you get your clients exposure to all that? Are you buying, like, how are you buying, are you taking their money and buying certain funds or like, like, and when you include like these classes, you know, there's, you said there's like gold, there's real estate, there's cryptocurrency now, there's like, you know, there's yeah. baseball cards that can gain in value. Like, how are we, how are you getting this money deployed in those areas? I'm just kind of curious. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, there, there, you know, you could buy all the stocks, you could, you could, you could buy exchange traded funds of, you know, these broad asset classes that can replicate it. There isn't going to be a perfect way to do a true global market portfolio, because like you correctly said, there's no way for me to invest in your house, for example, or for me to invest in all the art in the world. So what you have to do is try to create a proxy as close as possible to replicating all of the assets. So try to get as close as possible um, to that. Um, and so when you, once you've created this, the DV, you know, whether you've created the perfect one or as close to perfect, um, the idea here more is try to get exposure to everything in a diversified way and assign your weights according to the size of the markets, right? Once you've accomplished that, that's your sleep well at night portfolio. Then you're left with another portfolio, the last one that says, okay, this is my risk portfolio. What should I do here, right? How much money should I put in this one? And that's what we try to help people understand. If you had left with the $900,000, how much money should go into this super safe sleep well at night portfolio? And how much money should go into this third bucket where you could do 
trading. You could do just S&P 500 index fund. You could do private equity. You could do hedge funds. You could do, or you could do a levered version of the global market portfolio, which is what we recommend if you want more risk. So, but we leave it open. So that's, that's kind of like the consulting we try to get people, right? And then once they figure that out, we set that in motion and we just continue to monitor it. And, and that's it really. So I'm going to back up a little bit because you had mentioned the scientific approach you, you bring to the market. And we've had traders on here. Uh, we had Tim Sykes, for instance, was on here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, more than 20 years of experience trading consistently has, uh, you know, beat the market. You know, he's he for his uh, his thing. He always starts off with a small account, like twenty thousand dollars or so at, at the beginning of the year. And then, you know, usually has a couple hundred thousand at the end of it. Um do we just have survivorship bias because, you know, we love the story so much? I, you know, I've heard of the survivorship bias before in terms of um, it was a shipwreck and they made this painting afterwards for the, the 10 people that survived the shipwreck all because they prayed. And somebody asked, well, what about the people that died and still prayed? You know, like just because we're, we're celebrating these people that happen to survive. But I mean, is there just are we just giving it a survivorship bias? Are these people just lucky in the long run? Are market wizards and everything? I mean, it has to do with survivorship bias, definitely, but also um, maybe they have a skill, maybe, really. However, I cannot distinguish if it's a skill or luck. We don't have those tools. At least statistically speaking, we don't, we, we don't know. It's like if you uh, flip coins and you have, uh, let's say, uh, a set of coins that are perfectly balanced, like 50-50 heads and, and 50 uh, percent uh, tails. But then you have other coins that have 51% probability tails and 49% uh, probability uh, uh, heads. If you throw those ones, it's extremely difficult to really identify. And if you put all the coins together, it's extremely difficult to, to, to pick which ones have a 51% probability of tails. It's extremely difficult. Uh, so then if you add on top of that survivorship bias, then um, what it becomes is, again, risk, your risk and return trade-off, right, at the end. So, yeah, maybe that person has a skill, but maybe it's luck. So are you willing to take the risk? That's, that's the question. And so, if you are... So can I play devil's advocate? How do we know that? Does that apply to you guys as well? Are you guys just part of the noise then too? Are, are you guys lucky with your clients? Or how do we know that you guys are skillful, I guess, and, and, and just flipping that on you guys, how, what would be your response to somebody who came and asked you that question? Okay, because uh, what we're proposing has uh, two main components. One has empirical evidence. So empirical evidence, what we are saying is replicate the markets. That's what we're saying, okay? Replicate the markets. And here is all the literature that shows that 97% of people that try to beat the market doesn't beat the market, okay? And the ones that beat the market, which is the 3%, we cannot distinguish if it's luck or skill. That's what the only thing we're saying. We're not saying that we are better than the market. We're just saying replicate the market because that's where all the evidence is historically. Second, there's tons of robust uh, uh, financial theory since the 1950s that explain why this is the case. One case is because of the zero-sum game, as Juan Carlos was saying, the theory of zero-sum game. For every person that, or every dollar that beats 
the market, there's another dollar that has to lose against the market. This is just a mathematical um, ar arithmetics. The second is competition. People, the financial services probably is the most competitive field in the world. Everybody wants to maximize their money, everybody. Not everybody wants to become a football player. Not everybody wants to become uh, a CEO of a company, but everybody, everybody wants to maximize their money. So it's extremely competitive, right? It's extremely competitive. There's no evidence of arbitrage really on the markets. Um, um, at least there is not an, a good empirical research that shows that, oh, it's relatively easy to outperform. If it were easy to outperform, everybody would be doing that. And therefore, the market would be reflecting that competition again. So, so, so maybe can, I, can I ask, there are other zero-sum games, like for instance, like, like there's a poker, which is like a zero-sum game, like Texas Hold'em is a zero-sum game. But yet there are Texas Hold'em winners, you know, that they seem to win consistently throughout their careers. I, I don't know if the market is different, but I mean, are they just those 3% people that are, getting lucky, repeat, lucky repeatedly, or is there a skill? Like is Warren Buffett, you know, is he someone who just gets, he's gotten lucky and he's just survived all the way? Or is there an element of skill that he has? I mean, in your opinion, I guess, that, you know, has made him successful. I'll give you my opinion. In terms of the poker, for example, is um, you, there you need a skill, but also it could be that it's not as competitive as the financial markets. If you assume that everybody's super competitive playing poker, for example, everybody, everybody, all the players there, what you will see over time is rotation in the winners, right? I mean, one day maybe someone is going to win, but sometimes the other, the other guy is going to win. Why? Because if everybody's skillful, right, because of competition, it, the only factor that will matter is luck. That will be the only one. If everybody's exactly the same, has the same skill, so in the market, that's what's happening. There are so many people so skillful with so much money that they just taking money from one pocket to the other, one pocket to the other. And that's what we see in the evidence. We don't see in the evidence similar to, 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 to poker games, which maybe there's just a small group of people that wins and wins and wins, or even in sports, we don't see that. In financial markets, we see that, oh, one year this fund made a lot of money, then the next year you see another fund making a lot of money and things like that continuously. So so between, I'm just kind of curious because there's like this rise of retail investors and, and who knows if this is, you know, we, we're on Wall Street bets. We're seeing these things on CNBC. You know, we see GameStop flying, you know, and I don't know if those are the most sophisticated or competitive investors. I mean, I guess the point being there's, there's dumb money that enters poker, I would assume. There's people that are not skilled that go and join poker tournaments. I would assume there's some not skilled people that join the financial markets too, right? And is there a way that those people are being taken advantage of, you know, that's such that the skilled people can effectively absorb their money every year? I don't, I don't know. That's just... Definitely, that definitely, yes. But there are so many people doing that, that the margin that they're taking each of them is a tiny amount. You see? Okay. So people are, are losing money, of course, over time. All these players are going to lose money over time. But the money that they are losing is divided across all the skillful players. All of them. All of them. So it becomes just that, and at the end, actually, um, uh, there's a, pay, a very good paper about this that says the following. Who gets this additional amount of money, the skillful people that get this additional amount of money are going to be the managers of the funds, not the investors of the fund. So we have to differentiate. There are managers that manage money, which might be skills, skillful, 
and there are investors that put money in those funds, okay? Who gets the rents at the end? The managers, not the investors. So, so just out of curiosity, again, devil's advocate, is that a, ca- a case against, you know, financial investment or like, you know, inscription? I, I mean, you, you're being very honest here, but like, if you told me that today, I'd be like, oh man, maybe I don't want, you know, someone to manage my money because they're just going to take all the winnings like you just said right there. So, I mean, I guess, how, are you guys different than that? Or how do you, how, what, was your, what would be your response then to someone who shows you that paper and says, hey, why should I invest with you now? You, you know, you just told me the answer. And the answer is that you want to lower your costs. You want to pay the least as possible. So you want to pay the smallest amount of money as possible to replicate the market. That will be the, the answer. Because and, a, a, and anyway. I'll, and, I'll, and I'll add to that because, so I think the notion of what a financial advisor does is not yet, has not yet, yet been defined well. And that's kind of what we're trying to do, right? A financial advisor, in our opinion, is not meant to go and show you the next best fund to invest in, right? They're supposed to kind of teach you like a doctor, like a medical doctor, what is the correct recipe? What is, what, is, what is it that you need to do? Okay, here is what you need to do. Follow steps A, B, and C, right? And then call me because at the end of the day, what we've also seen is that we can give you the recipe, but then the behavioral side really starts to kick in. And that's really the value at the end of the day, I think of a financial advisor. It's really having someone that can consistently be there at your side, right? to educate you to really be there as your psychiatrist almost once you've implemented the plan because you know seeing a mark to market investment like the stock market go up and down every day most investors react totally different to that than a private investment they've made i get this question asked all the time is private equity better than public equity i'm like no it's just more risky that's why you get higher returns right and so at the end of the day people have no problem giving you know these private equity funds money in locking their money up for 10 years, right? And then 10 years later saying, oh, look, I doubled my money. I'm like, well, would that have done better at a risk adjusted basis, maybe in the public markets? And more times than not, it's, the answer is yes. The problem is, is that people don't see the price fluctuations in their private investments or in their homes or in other private assets, right? And so when it comes to hiring a, a financial advisor, sometimes I think the industry tries to always reinvent itself as to giving people access to special deals or special products when, it, when in the end, it really it's the, the advice is going kind of back to basics. And it's really trying to say, look, the reason you're going to hire us, how much is it now worth to you, the client, to have someone like us be at your side, right? When coronavirus hits again and your portfolios are down 40% to help you not to sell, <laughs> right? To help you not to do anything. <laughs> So it's I more, think you made a good point about the, the mental. People have trouble with it mentally. Um, this reminded me as we got into the conversation about a really interesting paper that I had read. Um, it's uh, by Victor Hanghani. And he, he brought in a group of students. And these were like MIT students or something. They were smart. You know, they knew what they were, they were doing. It's called rational decision-making under uncertainty. But he gave them a coin to flip, uh, an electronic coin with a 60% bias towards heads right? So 60% bias, you should be able to, you know, hit their maximum payout. I think he figured out that if every, if everyone was a rational player coming into it, knowing that there's a 60% bias, they should, he should have 95% of the people reach maximum payout. 21% of the people reached maximum payout. And they knew, they knew that the coin was going to flip heads 60% of the time. And so 
I guess I think you made a good point there. I think it's interesting because th- those guys, they're smart people. They're supposed to be smart people and they couldn't figure out max payout when they knew the bias of the coin. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have behavioral biases, right? Cognitive uh, biases all, all, all the time. Um, so for example, for entrepreneurs, we know that uh, these are just the statistics. We know that most entrepreneurs uh, fell in a, within 10 years horizon, right? Most of them. Like actually, I think the statistics is 70% of small companies fail in 10 years, right? 70%. Now, even if you tell this to the entrepreneur, right? I mean, you, that's your probability. And even if you do an analysis of its uh, business plan and you tell them, you have a 10% probability of being successful. Even if you tell them that, they, some of them will still want to do it. And this could be explained because of tolerance uh, to risk, but also, um, but also it's because of um, um, over-optimism, uh, overconfidence, and we have these biases embedded in us, right? And, and I think that's also the reason why people don't, um, and, and I wanna be very clear about the indexing. People don't index a lot because they associate it with average. And I want to I want to be very clear with what indexing means because I think what's happening now is that we are getting there's there is a lot of traction that is going on in the financial media markets the past say five or six years that people are indexing is getting more and more and more famous right people are starting to pick on companies like Betterment and Wealthfront are coming out really to to enforce it um, financial advisors we've seen our competitors start to actually implement some of this but. The problem is, is that indexing is now in a way becoming sometimes more dangerous for the investor um, than active management when the financial advisor is actually doing this. So an example, we've, we're going now from a world where you know, people who probably have more qualifications to value companies and do investors like a portfolio manager at a mutual fund company are making the decisions to where financial advisors are now firing these people in exchange for indexes but now the financial advisor is having to decide how much money should you give large caps? How much money should you give small caps? How much money should you give Europe? How much money should you put in bonds? How much money should you put in commodities? So it's almost a less qualified person is actually now deciding the intricacies of how to build the portfolio using index funds. But just because you use an index fund, if you don't use them correctly, if you don't use a broadly diversified you know, market cap weighted fund for a specific sector, you know, you're now making, you're almost becoming even more active, right? Trying to, you know, uh, get with the guessing game. So I want to be very clear that if you're going to go down the passive route, really be passive. And what passive means is if you want to be a passive investor in just the equity markets, only invest then in a, in a, in this broadly diversified market cap weighted index that you possibly can find. That's, that's, that's it. Right. And if you want to do it in the bond market, same thing. No, I think that's a great point. I, you know, I read the, a random walk down wall street and he, he basically echoed a lot of those points. He said, you know what, if you really, if you want to go a little bit riskier by uh, VTI, the Vanguard all market fund and just never look at it again. So correct. And if you want to go more risky than that, then go buy small cap value. Right. And that's going to give you higher drawdowns, but probably maybe uh, hopefully a higher expected return. Right. And that's the whole argument with, um, with, 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 with small cap. So look at the end of the day, risk and return are two sides of the same coin, right? There, there's no way around it. If you want higher returns, you have to take higher risk. 
right? And if you're a very risk averse person, you're going to have to settle for low returns. Absolutely. Brian, did you have a question there? Uh, I'm just curious, maybe on your last point, you said, you know, what is the value of, you know, what you guys are doing? And I, I think you mentioned, you know, a lot of these soft skills and talking to your clients, you know, and, and kind of, you know, when the market's down, you know, being there to, you know, be on the end of a phone call to talk people off the ledge. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, if you're, if young people are trying to break into this industry or, you know, get an internship or do this, thing, I mean, you know, I, I understand like, you know, having that PhD and, you know, you know, uh, portfolio theories, like, no, that's the really hard, you know, hard science behind it. But, you know, I guess in your mind, you know, where do you value the soft skills versus the hard skills, you know, and, and where do you see like, you know, those balancing out and, you know, in your industry and what matters? You know, I think, I think the, um, because of technology, I think the hard skills, um, are going to be, you know, the data, the data is overwhelming where people are, will start applying, you know, more and more. I think passive is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I think the formula of what to do is going to become sim more simple. Um, I think there is now going to become a challenge for people to stick with it. Right. And so I think these soft skills of whether you're going to educate yourself on it and not have to have a coach or a quarterback, you know, look at the end of the day, why does Roger Federer have a, have a coach? No one can beat him in tennis. Why does, why does he have a coach? Right. I mean, it's, it's for the same reason, right. He kind of wants a second eye of opinion. He wants someone there that can maybe make sure that he's not doing this correctly or that correctly. Right. That's the, I think that's the value add with the soft skills, how you did. I think it's going to be much more on the soft skills, right. Much more going forward because you know, the, the, the recipe is, is kind of there. It's been there actually for 50 years. You know, there's a favorite, there's a very famous, you guys have seen the movie wall street, right. With, uh, with Gordon Gecko, right. There's a, there's a scene there where Gordon Gecko turns to Charlie Sheen's character and goes, do you know why fund managers can't beat the S and P 500? This is in 1987, right? <laughs> He's criticizing how fun, like so whoever wrote that scene knew in 1987, there was talk talking about fund managers not being the S&P 500. Well, that's still going on today. And it was going on in the 1970s when Jack Bogle invented Vanguard, right? And it's just, it's still, it's still, you know, Jack Bogle invented Vanguard in 1970, I think two or three with the premise of inventing an index fund to give investors access to um, a, a way to invest in the S&P 500. Um, because I think it was Paul Samuelson, right, Julio, who wrote the paper that, that Bogle read or somewhere. And then he ended up creating Vanguard accepting this challenge from a professor that said, why hasn't anyone done this yet? And when he did it, everyone criticized him, right? He only raised a couple million dollars the first five or six years of Vanguard's in existence. Everyone's like, who wants to invest in this average fund, right? In the index. Lo and behold, Vanguard's now the largest asset manager in the world. <laughs> right, right. Yes. And I see, for example, I see myself more like an educator, more than a financial advisor. I see myself like educating, uh, communicating the message, communicating, because some of these academic papers are not that easy to read, actually. So I, I try to translate that, right? So that people can understand what are the main results, what are the facts? Uh, so it's more, more like an educator. I really appreciate that. I think that that makes a lot of sense and really helps us understand a little bit more what a financial advisor is, is even there for. Um, they're not necessarily there to help you beat the market, which I think a lot of people think, oh, if I hire somebody, they, you know, I better be making 20% a year or something like that. Um, I, I did want to ask about something else. You both have, you know, history and hedge funds. And, you know, just given the overall market right now, 
you know, there's this imaginary, or maybe it's real. You tell us there's this, there's this battle between the retail investors and the hedge funds right now. And that's the story that's being portrayed to us uh, in the media. Now, given, I know that on GameStop, you know, Melvin Capital was short, but I know there's other hedge funds that were long GameStop too, that have made out uh, like bandits. How did, did you guys have a view of this uh, even prior to, and now after the GameStop saga has, has evolved? What do, what do you think you're, uh, the role of hedge funds is, and are they the enemy of the retail investors? Um, you know, I think, let, let me back up on that because I always think it's funny when I see these stories, look, it's an interesting story because a lot of people are making a lot of money very fast. And a lot of people are losing a lot of money very fast. Right. It's uh, and, and in the end, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story, but I think that's what, it, that's all it is. It's an interesting story. Whether it's a real battle between hedge funds and retail investors, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe not. You really don't know who's on the other side of that trade, right? I mean, you can kind of speculate, get a good understanding of it. Um, I think it's just great theater at the end. Um, uh, you know, even listening to some of these hearings from from um, Robin Hood and, and, and when, when they were, you know, whether or not Citadel was was actually purposely trying to prevent people from, from buying GameStop on the Robinhood platform or not, intentionally or not. Um, who know, I mean, I don't know. There's, there, again, I've always, th I've always thought, look, the, the truth of the matter is the gray of the truth is, is sometimes not what people want it to be. People like it, this black or white, right? This hedge fund versus retail battle or, or you know, even our political system, this left or right. And the truth usually is in the gray, right? And the gray's boring and dull and people don't want to take the time really to get through it. Um, we we want a hero and a villain. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, you know, I think the markets are competitive, period. Whether it's hedge funds versus retail, it, you're, you're sitting down at a table when you're investing with everyone, right? You're sitting down at a poker table with the best poker players in the world, let the best man win, right? It's a very competitive market, like Julio said, right? And so if you think you've got this amazing trading strategy um, and it's been working, right? Um, just kind of step back and be humble about it and ask yourself, are, have you really found the next Renaissance technology? <laughs> or is this maybe just, a, are you on a lucky streak? Because you could very well sit down at a poker table with the best poker players in the world and beat them if you're lucky, right? <laughs> yeah, and any given Sunday, right? Or any given any given game. Uh, yeah, especially a yeah. game of luck like that. It, it could certainly go any way. All right. Well, I appreciate your input on that. Like I said, I was just curious. We don't talk to a whole lot of hedge fund people, so I figured I'd, I'd at least get your take on it. And like I said, I got as you know, I think it was the day or two after it really it went to 500 or something in pre market. Uh, Wall Street Journal published. Oh, by the way, these are the hedge funds that were long. So it's like, you know, I, I also know that hedge funds aren't sitting all there. They're not all sitting in a room together playing nice. Um, you know, I've read Jim Cramer's book, Confessions of a Street Addict, and it sounded like when there was blood in the water from one hedge fund, the other ones would start to attack even. Right. Extremely competitive. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And look, honestly, I, I don't want to, I mean, I'm going to spec, I don't want to speculate, but I feel I have to. I, I mean, Who's to say there's not even inside information? And that's the one thing that will give you alpha, right? But it's illegal, right? If, you, if there's a hedge fund that has inside information or a big family or whatever that has inside information on a company or something and they trade on it and they don't, and they don't get caught, well, then again, but they just know who you're going up against, right? And so that's the, that's the nature of this, 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 this game we're playing. Right. And also we have to, to, to have the perspective, right? Because, I mean, 
GameStop and these other companies are a tiny portion of the global economy, right? So it's, I mean, it's, it's really not, not uh, that a big deal on, on, the, on all the scheme, right? I mean, of everything that you can observe, all the trades that are in, in the world. So you can always expect things like this to happen, coordination of, of trading or um, things like that can, can, um, can, can always happen. Sometimes people will even tell me like, oh, the markets are not efficient because uh, it crashes from time to time. And I will say, I mean, actually, that's the opposite. If markets are relatively efficient, you should expect these big crashes, things that are completely unexpected. Those are the things that that had had to happen. If they were predictable, then the market will not be efficient. They will, you know, for sure that a market is not efficient. I, I think, yeah, you made a good point there. And these things, they do happen all the time. I know in my trading there are short squeezes that happen, you know, week after week. And I never have seen that short squeeze then mentioned on the six o'clock news that night. You know, I go, oh, look at that. You know, I have to see this cool short squeeze. And, you know, we knew about it because we were actively participating in the market. But if you weren't paying attention, you're not going to see a short, you know, you don't, you just don't hear about most of those big short squeezes that happen. Even though the percent moves are a lot of times the same, you just don't have the same uh, the same players and also not usually the same amount of money involved. That was in the billions most short squeezes are on like, you know, your, your low float, uh, low float, low small cap plays. And it's a couple million dollars changing hands. So, so yeah, well um, we do have one more section that we want to uh, get to, but do you guys have any, anything else that you wanted to uh, put out there about inscription capital or quantum or quantum capital? No. So, you know, just inscription capital again, is our investment advisor. We have, um, we have a podcast called now know this, uh, it's very educational in case anyone wants to check it out. It's called, again, it's called now know this with, um, myself as a host and another one of our partners at inscription, uh, Cole Conklin. And we'll link to the, your podcast in the, uh, in the show notes for sure. Um, well, we do have one final section. We call it the question of the day. Brian, I think, might have brought up a little bit more here since we have a bigger crowd here. So I'm going to let Brian. I don't know these questions. We're all in the dark here about what's about to hit us. So, Brian? Yeah, so these can be fun or you know informative. So I'm going to do a little quiz of the day. We'll do a little round robin, and then we can have a little chat about it later on. But I have – actually, there's going to be two rounds of this. So, um, But I have the top 10 list of U.S. universities by endowment, okay? And we'll go around and you can each say one and we'll see if we can get through all 10 and whoever gets the high score wins. And I'll, I'll let our, our guests go first. So Julio, if you want to give top 10 U.S. universities by size of endowment, this is according to U.S. News and World Report. Harvard. Harvard. Number one, 40 uh, billion. Juan, you want to go next? <laughs> oh, uh, Yale. Number two, 30 billion. <laughs> I like I'm going to go with a local name, Duke. Duke, actually, not on the list. <laughs> but that was a good guess, I think. I'm sure they're up there. Julio. Um, Stanford. St- Stanford, number three. Okay, T- Julio's got two. One. Um, let's see, what's a, another big one? Um, you know, Chicago? Chicago, not on the list. Mm. Um, Princeton. Princeton. Yes, number four. So you've got you. You've all got one through four right now. Going. All right, we've got one through four. So Julio's Julio's in the lead with two. Two correct. You keep score. 
MIT. MIT number five. You guys are going right down the list. One, two, three, four, five. So MIT, Julio, with a perfect score. Um, I think it gets harder from here on out. I guess I can't go public schools. I gotta go. I gotta go Ivy League, right? Um, Do you want? Is that a hint? Are you asking for a hint there? Yeah. I, there are mostly public schools on the list. There are a few private schools. They're not necessarily Ivy. I'm gonna say the University of Texas has to be on there, maybe. Uh, Texas A&M makes the list. Texas A&M is larger than the University of Texas. Wow. Yeah, twelve billion. Wow. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out here. Uh, Cornell. Cornell. Oh, unfortunately, not on the list. All right. I'm, okay, I'm you're, you're, you're struck out. You got three strikes now, Michael. You're you're out of the game. <laughs> Julio, you want to continue? You want to try for the for the last last one or two? Um, NYU. Uh, no, NYU, sorry, not on the list. Columbia, Columbia, Columbia. Has Columbia, number 10 on the list. Number 10, ah, just barely much. made it. All right. Has to be. Okay, go back to Julio. We'll, I just thought we'll of see. that because of NYU. <laughs> so, who, so who can get strike three before the other? <laughs> Julio, you want to give another guess? Um, I think it's going to be real tough now. Brown? Mm, not on the list. I can, want, I can tie it up here. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, Julio, you have any more guesses or you want me to give you the rest of them here? Just give them yeah, the rest. <laughs> so we got University of Pennsylvania, number six, ah, with yeah. uh, 14 billion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michigan, uh, 12 billion, number eight. And Notre Dame with 11 billion. Oh, so, wow. Interesting. Okay. And speaking of, you know, we were researching this. If you read these articles about university endowments, you know, I guess... I guess, what, what would you think? Like, how would you invest a university endowment if you knew you're an institution that's going to last forever, right? You know, and you don't have to retire and draw down income. I mean, it's something interesting. They, apparently, they, they, they underperformed the S&P 500. They've been underperforming for quite some time, but they've maintained about 9% or at least uh, Harvard was maintaining about a 9% per year, you know, return when this was taken. It's just right. interesting. So how would we how would we invest a university endowment? That's the yeah. question. Yeah, if you were to, if you were to do it, what would, what would you what would I guess versus would an individual? Because you know we, the university's gonna be around forever. We would we would invest in every market available, <laughs> and we would lever the portfolio up to, to as much as we could without incurring a huge potential wipeout. That's what Julio, you're in the same camp. <laughs> yes, market replication of all asset classes with leverage. And, and just out of curiosity, you think that would beat the current strategy right now? And not yes. like it. Oh, it yeah. would destroy it. For sure. It would destroy it. Yeah, I'm so, this is because, my thing. Because, because, because Brian, think about, think about what leverage does, right? And like they will save gonna... towns in fees, which is also very important. They pay a lot yeah. in fees, these, these universities. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But it's a game. There's a lot of, the problem with, I think, endowment, the, the people who run endowments, there's a lot of career risk here, right? So it's an institution that depends on people doing the right, you know, investigations and who's better and who's not. And I think um, Yale really with, um, oh, what's the guy that runs Yale? Um, very famous guy. Um, what's his name? David Swenson. Um, so David Swenson wrote a book on this, like I think in the early 2000s. And he kind of, he kind of led the charge for a lot of the pensions to start going more into uh, privates. And, um, and they've been doing that for a long, long time. You know, Harvard followed and everyone else started following to alternative investments, hedge funds, private equity. 
and they still can't beat the simple S&P 500. And this is something that even Warren Buffett's come out and said, Berkshire Hathaway hasn't beat the S&P 500 in the past, say, 15 years. So, I, mean, so, I guess it's like if, if your job is like go put it in the fund and then your job is done, you don't justify like a seven figure salary if you just say, hey. And exactly. uh, the other thing I, I was maybe this exactly. is, and I work at a university, so we're, you know, I work at NC State. I don't know how they're managing their endowment. I have no control over it. But I think the other thing would be, you know, I'm sure you're going to a lot of fancy lunches with all these people that come to your university to, you know, get you to invest in their fund. And those people might be donors or alumni too. So, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure to know, you know, spread the wealth around, I guess, to these different people that with their different strategies. But, you know, I'm not sure that's playing in the back of people's minds, you know, as well. For sure. For sure. I mean, it's, there's a lot of other reasons why I think the, 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 the you know, I've always asked Julio the question I, I, I would read. Um, I think the only endowment or sovereign wealth, a sovereign wealth fund actually that did this, I think if y'all can research the, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, they did a huge change to their investment philosophy. I think right as the financial crisis was happening, where they literally had a mandate to the, where they were they were just going to own equity in every company on in planet Earth <laughs> that they could, and then they would do it in a market cap weighted way. And that and they've actually outperformed everyone just doing that simple philosophy. And they were criticized for doing that in two thousand eight. Um, but look at the end, that's it's funny. It's like, Oh, if you, once you start applying what the kind of the evidence says that is, you know, the way to do it, it kind of ends up in the long run working, you know, I think it's just like you guys said, it's just, it's boring. It's not the, it's not the sexy way to do it. Well, I mean, it, I think it's just funny. The university is supposed to be this, you know, the high place of knowledge, the ivory tower. These are the smartest people on the planet and they will choose, I guess, an inefficient but the, but strategy. The professors are not, but the professors are actually not the ones running it. Right. Julio. Exactly. I mean, yeah, no, no, it's a different, uh, it's a different uh, part of the university, right? I mean, professors are not involved. They are the trustees, right? The ones that are, so it's the board. And the board typically are, uh, you know, in, uh, wealthy individuals that have all these survivorship biases behind them that they, try, they think they're better than the rest and that they can outperform anybody else, right? So, that, so they have this embedded in their mind. So are, the professors are not the ones that are running this. Uh, this. Are, are, the, are the wealthy people that are, uh, you know, uh, given gifts and, 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 and things to the university, right? So that's why they are the ones that decide how to manage the money of the university. So are not the professors. Sure. Well, Michael, did you want to add anything? No, they've covered it. I wouldn't know what to do with that. I would, I would call it Juan and Julio if somebody asked me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You wouldn't day trade it for them? I think you do a great job. I don't know. My strategy, I, I mean, I have a day trading strategy, but no, it, it could not handle. It's not, they're not that liquid. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds good. Well, we really appreciate having you on, Juan and Julio. And uh, this has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian. And this is Michael. Thanks for listening. Trading for Keeps is not intended as investment advice. It is only intended for entertainment purposes. We do receive some affiliate commissions from links in our show notes.